0: So um, for those of you who live in Georgia and for those of you that don't, you may have heard that HB 30 has now passed our legislature. Now, what does that mean? Practically, HB 30 basically codifies a uh, basically ridiculous definition of anti-Semitism into hate speech law that basically says any criticism of the state of Israel, any um Protests in favor of Palestine can be investigated as hate speech and even tied to treasonous to, treasonous talk, domestic terrorism. All of that they've opened all of that as they're expanding RICO law as well. Basically, it's designed to get people fired and get people prosecuted for supporting Palestine and really any criticism of the state because they they really have, are expanding the definition of RICO law at the same time. Now, um, I share that just because you know we have. Uh, both been very involved in the local struggle for palestine but since this law passed we now have to no i'm just kidding we're gonna keep doing it they're, they're not gonna stop us um there's not there's not anything they're gonna do they can they can pry both this mic and the protesting out of our cold dead hands and uh we're gonna keep it going because this just means that they're freaked out so uh with that keep the music
1: listening to Socialist Shelf Radio. So close listeners, close friends of the uh, Socialist Shelf um, will recall that our good friend Jacob has a near spotless record of DMing very interesting people doing very important work and, you know, bringing them on our little podcast. Of course, our friend Jonathan Melrod here is no exception. He himself, indeed, is a uh, practitioner of that grand tradition, you know, having um, when he was getting into socialism, according to his book, you know, having written no less a person than Mao Zedong about, hey, can you tell me about this socialism thing you're doing in China? And wouldn't you know it? He got a response, you know. So, you know, first guy to ever do it, labor organizer from the 70s and 80s, uh, anti-war organizer before that, Mr. Jonathan Melrod, human rights lawyer now. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it. And, you know, if I could make one comment, please, response to Jacob. I just posted something on Twitter. My sons who are in their 20s have a friend who's an Afghani refugee. Mm. His father had been a translator for the U.S. military. So that's how he got status to come to the States. Mm. And he's been posting on Facebook a lot about Palestine Right. and being very critical of the U.S. government and of the Israeli government, the FBI came to his house wow. to wow. talk to him about it. And this, he had these, you know, sort of streets are paved with gold, you know, mm. free speech is, is sacrosanct in that country. And now he's just like, God, this is fucked up. Yeah, I exactly. even post on Facebook. You know, I mean, they scared the shit out of him because, Mm -hmm. you know, immigrants are always sensitive. I used to be a refugee asylum lawyer, you know, are always nervous about their immigration status. And for good reason, because Trump, if Trump's in, he's got so many plans he's announced getting rid of anchor babies or, you know, kids who were born here, but to non-citizen parents, that it's a scary period for any immigrant. But I just wanted to add that to what you're saying. I mean, it's a real revival of sort of a McCarthyism, you know, control over speech.
0: Well, yes. it was while when they were hearing HB 30, they only allowed for 30 minutes of public comment. And there were like 100 people who were there to speak. They only let people in favor of the bill speak. And when they said, OK, we have no more time and people started to kind of stand up, they arrested people for even speaking out and dragged everybody out of the room that that disagreed with them. I mean, it's really intense. You know, we've always it's uh it's but it also shows a sort of instability, a sort of insecurity. But um, Jonathan, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, I, I our, The book is that you have written is called Fighting Times. We've both read it. Um, and it's basically, I mean, you can describe it yourself if you like, but it's basically a memoir, a, a history of struggle. And you have been in a variety of struggles going back uh, to the seventies. And uh, yeah, what, 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 Basically, if you're given the elevator pitch for uh, Fighting Times, what do you tell people?
2: Well, I always have a problem with the elevator pitch because I get too long winded. <laughs> well, go for but, it. You know, it's a
0: long form podcast. It's so. a tall building, let's say. <laughs> yeah, it's tall. But it's actually,
2: tall actually, I first became involved in 1965, 65, because, because they had killed in 64. They killed Schwerner, Cheney and Goodwin, who were um, civil rights workers registering blacks to vote in Mississippi Mm -hmm. and the police arrested them. And then when the Klan arrived, they let them out the back door, handed them over to the Klan and the Klan killed them and buried them in some bogs in Mississippi. And it wasn't until years later that their bodies were found. And even once their bodies were found, and even once there was evidence of what Klan members had committed those murders, the jury in those days refused to find the, you know, the Klan members guilty. I think they lose this rare part of the law, which, what is it? It's necessity or something, you know, that overcomes all other, you know, defenses. And they were never prosecuted. So I was about 15 and I said, I'm not that much younger than them. I mean, that could have been me. And motivated me at that point to get involved in the civil rights struggle. And I had grown up in Washington, D.C. And you'll know this, very well from you know georgia and georgia history but dc in the 50s and 60s when i was a kid was a very much apartheid-like city i mean it really was jim crow you know i mean i have an early memory of you know my father having bought a new Chevrolet Impala, taking us out to Virginia for a drive in the country Mm -hmm. and seeing chain gangs of all blacks, you know, chained at the waist, chained at the ankles and a, you know, big white sheriff with a shotgun over his belly, you know, keeping, you know, watching guard over them. And as a little kid, it was like, something doesn't make sense in this picture. I didn't really understand it. But in 1960, we always used to go to Glen Echo Amusement Park, which was in Maryland, rural Maryland outside DC. And some black students from Howard University uh, decided to throw up a picket line to demand that the park be integrated. Looking back, it's shocking to think that an amusement park was not integrated. Mm -hmm. And of course, when they started picketing, out came the racist in force and started attacking the picketers and it became a real racial standoff. Right. And the whites went to the extent where they like carried bottles and bottles of bleach, dumped it in the pool so that nobody could swim. Right. I mean, if we it can't like have it, nobody strategy. We'd rather not let our kids swim than yeah. swim with black kids. Oh, yeah. If, you know, like it's like it's 100 degrees in D.C., like Georgia, and it's muggy and there's nowhere to swim. And, you know, these things m- made a lifelong impression on me. I mean, that's what sort of started my politics and kept my politics on track in that all my life, I always was a supporter of the Black liberation struggle.
3: Yeah,
2: You know, I, I first landed on the FBI's list in 1969. There was, they traced a telephone call from my apartment in Madison, Wisconsin, to the Black Panther office in Chicago, Illinois, where we were arranging that I would be in charge of distribution of the Black Panther Party paper on campus. We used to sell about 350 copies every week to students. And they noted down my phone number, my address, and said, make sure he's not associating with any Black nationalists. Well, they didn't have to go very far to find out the answer to that. But, you know, but, but, That that thinking carried through to when I left Madison and took a job in a factory, because one of the primary tenets of all the factory organizing that I did was to build the struggle against white supremacy and racism. Mm -hmm. Even when it was not so easy, even when it was kind of tough, you know, being out there, you know, calling on people to join us to go down and march in Tupelo, Mississippi, against the KKK, and there were a lot of rednecks in the Kenosha factory. Um, you know, you gotta go up against that because that's the essence of what keeps workers divided and weakens the union. And there's just endless examples in my book of you know those battles that really come out in a living way. It's not a lecture on why you shouldn't be racist, or why you should think like a socialist. It's all living experiences. Right. And just so people know, um, you know, if they go to PM Press, which is the publisher of the book, and they type in gift, they'll get it at 50% off. So I just yeah. want to make sure that people are aware of that, because that makes it affordable for just about or, or for most people, let's say.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. we will absolutely put that uh, link in the description of this episode as well. Um, You have a specific anecdote that early in the book that stuck out to me about Being young and seeing a lot of factory workers have very reactionary opinions, basically saying go home hippies, you know, all of that. And it's like Vietnam era and you thinking not just, you know, kind of like, you know, that nervousness and that obvious, like, you know, kind of gut feeling of like, oh, when someone's angry with you, but also like, man, I wish we had these guys on our side because these guys are powerful. And Mm -hmm. I really loved that because that is a... That is a perfect impulse that I think a lot of people maybe miss. I think a lot of people will see a sort of working class type of reactionary um, uh, backlash to some opinion or this, that or the other. Um, and their automatic thought will be like, we have to get away from these people. But I think a um, in, in some situations, you do have to remove yourself, of course. But I think that the impulse of socialists, especially if you have any desire to be an organizer, has to be, how do we win these people over? Because these are the people, despite all their contradictions, that make the mm-hmm. gears turn. And I really loved that right from the get-go for your book. No, you're
2: exactly right. And, and I'll just add a little bit to that story. Please. because. You know, I mean, this was we were still just coming out of the McCarthy period.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. couldn't
2: talk about socialism as freely as we do today. Right. And, you know, the banners they hang, they hung were like came out of the 50s. Better, better dead than red. Commies go home. And the irony was that the buses we were blocking were on their way to the induction center in Manchester, New Hampshire, And those buses were filled with the kids of those workers in those factories. Wow. So, you know, that's when we said, and that's where I began to think that the working class, that you had to be organizing the working class. And I think it's important to recognize that today, the reaction of the working class to what's going on in Palestine has been so much more open, Refreshing, anti-imperialist, you know, it's a very big difference. When you have the UAW passing a resolution calling for a ceasefire,
3: fantastic. It's really yes.
2: Encouraging to me because it took us years and years to get the majority of the population to oppose the Vietnam War. Right. I mean, we were considered pariahs in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, who wore sandals and smoked, you know, weed and what have you. You know, but the rest of the population, you know, it was really, you know, anti-war, anti anti anti-war, you know, war advocates of the anti-war movement. And, you know, there's a big difference now, and particularly with young people. My kids who were in their 20s, I went to a couple of the marches with them here, and it was really uh, inspiring to see so many young people who didn't believe that the government must know better than we do because they're the government. Mm -hmm. What part of the country
0: are you in now, uh, Jonathan? Uh, I'm outside of San Francisco. San Francisco. Gotcha.
2: So So, there's been some big ones out there. there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've had, I think the march of that one that I was on was 50,000 people. And it was very, very diverse and included, you know, contingents of Palestinians, contingents of Filipinos marching under the Filipino revolutionary banner because they're very involved in the revolution in the Philippines and a lot of Jews for, you know, justice in Palestine. You know, I myself am Jewish, you know, but I was proud to be marching there to make it clear that Jewish people like myself believe in justice, you know, and condemn the actions that are being perpetrated against the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Um, But to get back, you know, I want to get, take us back a little bit to this issue of fighting white supremacy and racism.
3: Mm-hmm. In,
2: in Madison, it was about, it was February of 1969, so I had only been there for a, a half a year, and I was in something called Students for a Democratic Society,
3: mm-hmm. which
2: was yeah. the or- mass, mass organization mm-hmm. of anti-war students. There were about 100,000 students in it at the time.
0: I just got to say that uh, when I was in college and doing college organizing, that's when I first got into it. We like saw SDS is like the model. Like there was so many people who um, saw SDS as like we have to get back towards that, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, I remember being fascinated by that history. So it's so cool that you were involved with that. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I picked University of Wisconsin-Madison because next to Berkeley, it was the most radical school in the country with yes. the most vibrant you know, student opposition and insurgency. And yeah. a good example I'm gonna to get to is that the black students had been arguing for a couple of years to increase black admissions. There were only 500 black students out of 30,000 students. <laughs> wow. To increase the number of black professors to teach black ethnic studies. And so, you know, originally, these black students were somewhat nationalistic. They didn't want to go, you know, ally with white students. They thought they mm-hmm. could do it themselves. And they actually called a strike. But when you strike and you only got 500 people out of 30,000, just the numbers don't work. Oh yeah. So they wanted to make an alliance with SDS. And we, of course, were right there ready to make that alliance. And. The first day of the strike, we formed what was called impenetrable picket lines. We would block all the gate uh, entrances to the building, lock our arms and explain to students why we were doing it. Try to educate them, but be very clear that we were taking that stand and we we're going to shut the university down. Right. And like this is not that,
0: negotiable. We are yes. locking this building down. I love it.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, and we would go into the building as classes, after classes had changed, and we'd walk into a classroom, and we'd ask the professor if we could explain the strike. And if the professor said no, we'd go up to the front of the room, take the mic or go behind the podium, and just hijack the class Mm -hmm. and explain the historical inequities that Black people had faced, Mm -hmm. and that those still existed just by virtue of the number so few Black students attending the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Absolutely. So after we had the school shut down for a while, the uh, governor called out the National Guard, and the National Guard marched in with bayonets on their rifles, and really marched right up into our picket lines and scattered us. And they were also driving around Jeeps with 50-millimeter machine guns on the back.
0: I believe you say uh, the the war had come to Madison in your book, or it's something along those lines. It was a very very dramatic, but it also gave painted such a great great uh, image.
2: Excuse me. There's a great movie called The War at Home, which if people haven't seen it, it's on my website, and it's about the early period of the of the student movement in Madison. Um, in fact, you had asked a question or talked about us having a discussion about culture and i've been really trying on my website to revive working class culture or to make it more available and that's at jonathanmelrod.com mm-hmm. and on it is the war at home on it are the you know some of the early strikes by minors and you know black and white footage that people young people if they go there they'll find it really intriguing and yeah. every week we release a different song called song of working class song of the week on our Facebook and our social media, Instagram. So culture is very important, but I want to just go on with this one story because we met and we said, all right, we can't keep blocking the buildings the way we have. Mm -hmm. Let's March on the Capitol. So we planned for a March that night on the Capitol in Madison Ten thousand students came to the march. Now, if all five hundred black students came, that still meant that nine thousand five hundred white students attended. Mm. So, all this BS about critical race theory—people's feelings will get hurt. White kids will get a complex. It's nonsense. Exactly. So we had spent time educating the white students, and they came out strictly in support. Of the black yes. student demands. So to me, that's such an important you know, example of what organizing can produce. And you know, it takes organizing. Nothing happens on its own. I mean, that's why podcasts like you guys are doing are such great things, because the organizing tools available now are so much more available, you know, for everyone that it can really deliver the message. Um, so I, that's what I, I, appreciate being on here. How did but, you, um,
0: how would you, without those tools, how, how, what was like a way of like assembling that amount of people? Because 10,000 people, that's, that's a heck of a lot. Was it just a lot of flyering was what yeah, was the like, usual message?
2: No, no, no. We, we were very organized. I mean, we yeah. had, we had each, we had different in the cadre organization. We had people assigned to dorm organizing to, you know, to guerrilla theater, to put on performances, to organizing of women, to organizing in the student neighborhood. So they were each responsible for getting posters up that night about what was going down the next morning. So, you know, it was really people knew what responsibilities they had. For instance, I was a dorm organizer. I went to the dorms two nights every week and we banged on every door and asked, can we come in and talk to you about the Vietnam War, about the Black Liberation Movement? And we just, we did it. And then 10,000 people came out. So, you know, that's the phase we're in, in a lot of ways in the States. You know, we've gotta be educating a lot of, you know, our brothers and sisters As to what the struggle is. I mean, we've got a great start going right now, but we got to bring many, many more people into the struggle. Oh, yeah. So that when we hit the streets on Palestine, we can close the streets in no matter what city it is.
3: Yes.
1: Yeah, that's what's really that's what's really been encouraging to me about the whole um, the whole Palestine movement right now is that, you know, it's the momentum has not slowed. In fact, it's gaining steam. You know, you have a you have a half million person march in uh, November on Washington to demand a ceasefire. You have a half million person march in January, you know, and as the contradictions intensify and, you know, the United States. You know, lurches us closer and closer to a regional war. You know, the I mean, the contradictions are. I mean, Israel has lost the narrative on this, right? The 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 war crimes are incontrovertible. You know, it is right there on the um, on the world stage and impossible to ignore in a way that um, that you know. Nevertheless, we still have to be out there and um, and talking about this stuff, right? Because you know, it's not enough to have reach. You know, the tools have certainly changed, but you know, nevertheless. Um, you know, nevertheless, it's it's the people using them that have to that have to rise to uh, to any of the misinformation out there and i it's it's been very it's been very admirable to see people tirelessly you know not just promulgating the um you know the counter narrative the counter narratives to imperialism but just having those conversations you know day to day again like it's it's you know people go where people may have contradictions at the forefront of their mind but not necessarily like articulate them so it takes it takes that face to face conversation definitely to sort of get those to get those gears turning and that's that's what i was repeatedly impressed by in your book
2: yeah I mean, just to follow up on what you're saying today, the Chicago City Council passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Yes. Now we're talking about, we're not talking about liberal New York or San Francisco. We're talking about your Midwest city. Oh, yeah. And we voted for, you know, the resolution for, um, you know, a ceasefire. So, you know, as you say, it's continuing to spread. And, you know, organizers all over the country are, are... you know, continuing to keep it on the agenda.
0: Yeah, it was uh, Atlanta, you know, uh, to to brag on our city a little bit, we got this Atlanta City Council to pass a similar resolution. uh, And that did not happen because they wanted to. It happened because they were not able to have city council meetings, (laughs) you know, that's and they were like, Fuck these guys. We'll pass. We'll sign mm-hmm. whatever you want us to sign. You know.
2: <laughs> From the sound of it, you guys are in Atlanta are pretty damn organized.
0: We're, we're having we're 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 working on it. We're working on it. But uh, and I will say also that uh, in Atlanta we had. And this gets into the you know, United Auto workers. Uh, we either we had a United Auto workers strike not far from here. Well, part of the grander strike uh in Morrow, Georgia. Both Lenora and I were out on that picket line quite a bit. Um, and I'll note when some of the stuff that from this uh you know October 7th and the Israel-Palestine conflict started kicking off, um, it was interesting to see a lot of these uh these workers that are not particularly political people, at least they they don't think they're political people, you know, um, say just like, I'm I'm not. I'm not we're not going to have another war. I don't Mm -hmm. want another war like fuck another war. That was like kind of the line I was hearing, not like, a you know, incredibly analytical, whatever on imperialism, just I'm tired of sending people over there to die. I'm tired of seeing people die over there. And I'm tired of realizing that our bombs are the ones killing people, which is a much better analysis, by the way, than like a lot of Middle East professors at Harvard or whatever. <laughs> Their analysis is actually much more advanced. But you worked with the United Auto Workers for a long time. Um and that's a large part of your book focuses on that. I would love if you would um, you know, expound a little bit and talk a little bit about that part of the book. Though of course um people should absolutely read it for themselves as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, by the way, it's great that you guys were on that picket line because parts plants, which I believe that was a parts plant yes really are second-class citizens in the Mm. UAW. Oh, yeah. That's what they said, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, with the new president, and I'm very slow to endorse any union leadership. I really come from the rank-and-file perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, but Sean Fain, you know, really has been a reform leader. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we're going to make, continue to make progress. I mean, I just read that, in the thirteen non-union auto plants in the South, there's already ten thousand union certification cards have been signed. Oh so, yeah, that's underway. Yeah, Absolutely. so the spillover from the Big Three strike has is really important. But let's you know go back to the UAW that I went into. Please. In at the end of my time in Madison, we were all part of an organization. Called Revolutionary Youth Movement Two.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And Revolutionary Youth Movement Two, or RIM Two, had two basic principles that united people. One was support for the Black Panther Party. And the second was a commitment upon graduation or upon leaving school to either go into the military to organize against the Vietnam War or to go into the working class to continue our organizing, recognizing that the working class. was was the only class that truly had the power and the sense of organization that comes from that experience of working and being collectively reliant on each other every day, you know, that that's where we had to spread the revolutionary movement. So in 1971, I went into the first factory that I had been in, which was um, we were making paint trays and paintbrushes for Sears and Roebuck. And that was I was only in that job for a short time, but I wanted to mention it because one of my jobs was was going down in this concrete vat that was filled with trichloroethylene, which is a very dangerous toxic chemical. Yeah, it's used when you put metal under a punch press, you have to put a layer of grease on it oil on it so that it doesn't stick to the dye so that it falls off when the press cycles and those trays are then run through this vat and run through trichloroethylene that burns the the oil off of them so i said to the straw boss i said you know where where's the ppe Where's the (laughs) equipment oh and he says you know juan he was a latino guy he says juan You know that's for sissies. Yeah, and I'm like, hey, I'm a sissy. You know, (laughs) yeah, I'm a sissy. You can breathe. (laughs) None of one. That's your job. You got to get in, clean it. (laughs) So he gives me a dustpan and a, you know, dust broom, and I'm down there and I'm literally choking and you know nauseous and I'm about to faint. So I hop out to get some fresh air, and that was a job I had to do regularly at that point. Many years later. When I, I, in 2004, I was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. Yeah. I was only given six months to a year at most to live and told to put my affairs in order. And, they, and the surgeon traced it back directly to trichloroethylene exposure and tanning solvents. Because later in this story, I get fired by the FBI, comes into, you know, work, works with the auto plant that I'm where I'm working and sends up a memo which is up on my website, mm-hmm. Jonathan and the memo says get rid of him and never bring him back again. Yeah. So, you know You know, but- it's interesting.
0: I, I I worked um in a um a plant that worked on transmissions, uh refurbishing transmissions for a while. Um, here in Georgia, non-union plant, and it's a similar culture of like the bosses or whatever. If people ask for PPP or uh, PPE and like protection and stuff, like you know, we're breathing in fumes that are sealant on this stuff. The guys breathing it in day after day after day. And I mean, I had been there. I'm, I guess, I was 17, 18 at the time, um, and I was like getting developing like bronchitis just as a as a young yeah. a young guy breathing that in every day and there were some guys there that had been there working there 20 plus years even more and it was unbelievable to see and then how that you know um and 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 i've talked about that place before that place if anywhere needs a union but um oh, yeah, yeah yeah but but then you um what made you leave um the plastics place to, to go to the united auto workers
2: i had started going to union meetings i forget where union it was very small very weak at the plastic injection factory but i had heard people talking about those radical rowdy guys who work at american motors now you guys are too young to remember american motors but Mm -hmm. we made you know it was the fourth largest auto company Mm -hmm. you know at the time and you know it had grown out of the nash and then rambler and then we were american motors Mm -hmm. and i had i had somebody had said to me that in, and this was true, I found it in the newspaper later. In 1969, there were 14 wildcat strikes in one week at the wow. two American Motors plants in That's Kenosha awesome. and Milwaukee. Mm. You know, every time they'd get guys back to work, there'd be another grievance and back out they'd go on a wildcat. <laughs> and Walter Ruther, who was supposedly the hero of the auto workers, went into the New York Times and said, Those auto workers have got to get themselves under control. Wow. He's the one who traded away the rights we still had at American Motors. Mm -hmm. We had the right to strike over all grievances. We had one steward for every 35 employees on the line. And you only had to work a half hour a day before you could get off to represent people. And we had 100% voluntary overtime. And in my book, I talk about what Ruther traded for each of those rights because all of the big three used to have that tripartite of rights, but he traded it for more vacation time, for better pay, Mm. and in the long run, it decapitated the militancy of the workers' movement.
3: Right.
2: Um, So, you know, I decided I wanted to be where the action was. I got hired on at American Motors and it was really, it was like it was like going to Woodstock, you know, everybody was young, you know, everybody, everyone, you know, people of color had big fros, you know, you know, white guys had their, you know, their hair on their shoulders, you know, I mean, it looked like, you know, I can relate right here. Yeah. But in those days, you know, it was like that defined you as being rebel, you know, anti-system. And so they hired, they were hiring hundreds of us. And I was told to report the next Monday with a group of about 30 people. And they took us in and they started in the bottom of the plant. It was a five story factory. And on the first floor were the big punch presses, two stories high. And I noticed that in our group, there were three black workers and one Puerto Rican worker and they all got assigned to the punch presses. And I looked around, everybody on a punch press was black. Right. The so most dangerous right away, area. you know, it smacks you in the face that there's racism going on in you know both the union and the company because you know these workers have been relegated to the bottom floor where the work is the toughest and the loudest. Oh yeah. right. So you know, as we went up the stairs, it got cleaner and quieter, and I went. I was on the fourth floor, assigned to the uh, trim line, and you know, I we worked I did my 60 day probation and I was then in the union and I'd only been in the union like 3 days and I didn't get my morning break. You were supposed to get a 5 car break. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I loved mean, this part, yeah. Walk, walk. I didn't walk, get my walk, break
2: walk. and everybody started shouting, "Melrod, you some kind of company man? Yeah. <laughs> take, your, take your goddamn break." Yeah. You scared the for- boss, you know, and so it's like you know a hazing ritual in a fraternity uh-huh. or something. <laughs> Finally, I said, "Fuck it! If I'm going to be known as the radical and the militant," and I took the tail lights I had, threw them in the back of the car, and walked off and mm-hmm. went to the cafeteria and sat down to smoke a camel non-filter. Um, you know, those were the days. But um, <laughs> but uh, and I can see the, the the supervisor, you know, in his white. Short sleeve shirt, headed toward me. His face was red, you know, and I mean, he was really huffing and puffing. And he said, "Melrod, you're fucking fired. Get out of this plant." And I said, "You know, I was a little bit intimidated." I said, "Damn, you know, I've only been here two days, and I'm already fired." <laughs> um, but uh, my this guy comes up. I didn't know him. He had a little blue button. They were called blue button stewards in the old days. And he says, "Melrod." I'm telling you, go back on your job. Foreman says, no, he's fired. And the steward brings out the contract. Contract says that you must have a break before 9.30, the line stops. And I went back to work. And I said, at that moment, I'm going to be a blue button steward because I want to have that kind of power to be able to stand up to the corporation and say, that worker has that right to that break and you got no right to try and take it away from him.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's so, the th- mm-hmm. people notice advocacy.
2: Yeah, well, they really did. I mean, after that, the young guys were all like, hey, Melrod, what do we do next? You know, mm-hmm. and, and interestingly enough, most of the first guys that came forward were guys of color who had been back from Vietnam. Right. You know, I mean, and, it, you know, it was, you know, it really you learned so much getting to know people. I went over to one of the black guys houses. Bill Roby. And I'm, you know, I went over there trying to talk to him about let's form a caucus, you know, that will get us all active and sticking together. I looked on his bookshelf and he's got the first volume of Das Kapital by Marx. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, bro, how'd you get into Marx, you know? And he said, well, when I got back from Nam, a lot of brothers on the base had a study group and we were studying Das Kapital. Wow. And I said, wow, you started with some stuff. <laughs> That's you both know? Feet, yeah. I said, it's, it's right, but it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was like my opening to say, you know, workers aren't this category of like sort of dumb robots that work no. on the assembly line. They're thinking all the time. And, you know, when they're exposed to different ideas, they, you know, cling on to them because they make sense out of their day-to-day life. You know, mm-hmm.
0: I, I uh, when I worked at Chili's, there was a guy I once and I was trying to talk politics with him and he immediately was like, look, man, I'm a communist. And I was like, oh, shoot, sure. You know, <laughs> you don't hear that very often. And I was like, what made you a communist? And he goes, to be honest, I just looked up who killed the most Nazis. And that and he was like, automatically, I was like, I agree with that. <laughs> but cool. he really was like he did actually get into the ideology and, and understanding mm. it. But it was a funny like, you know, that these people, people are not a mo- people are not a monolith by any sense. And you want to want to paint with a broad brush. But like I said, the UAW workers that um, I got to know had a better understanding of Israel Palestine than a lot of so-called experts. So 100 percent.
2: Yeah. And that's interesting about the guy who who you were working with, you know, because <laughs> a lot of times i bring up the discussion you know who won world war ii you know who pushed the nazis back in world war ii Mm -hmm. it was the red army yeah you know and that's been written out of history you know i mean i don't you know i don't see the soviet union or or russia as a socialist country or anything that's you know a model today but you know if it hadn't been for the Soviet Union at the during World War II, the United States stayed on the fence, yeah, so no the doubt. fighting got a lot easier. That's yeah. not to integrate the you know the guys who went over and fought, but you know the yeah. fact is that the U.S. held back until the Russians had really you know changed the momentum of the yeah, war.
0: That's just history.
1: Mm-hmm. That's just facts. Just yeah. yeah, and even but, and even sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, I'm just going to continue on. So yeah, please do. You know, mm-hmm. So the. What happened next was the company came around on a Thursday to notify people on the assembly line of anything. You had to have a steward with the supervisor. Supervisors were not allowed to go up and give instructions to workers without a steward being there. Hmm. So they came around to notify us that we were going to have to work on Saturday overtime. And right away, you know, we're all in the cafeteria. The young guys what the fuck? You know, yeah. party Friday night. With, <laughs> you know, we didn't sign up for Saturday yeah, live for the weekend. Um, yeah. So I went home that night. I found I had a copy of the contract, which most people didn't have, which is unfortunately typical of unions. I'm working with a teamster up in Sacramento. He says, we got to demand contracts. So I'm the only one in the factory that has a contract. Wow. You know, basic union stuff doesn't go on anymore. Anyways, I found in the contract where all volunteer all overtime is voluntary. So I went and made Xerox copies. For those who don't know, that's like going to Kinko's. <laughs> and we made Xeroxes of that page and we all started to hand them out to each other. And so when they came around Friday, you know, to notify and check that people would be in there, all you could hear was people, I ain't coming in Saturday, mm-hmm. Saturday's my day. What happened? They had to cancel the overtime. So one, we felt that we had exerted our collective power. Two, we'd observed a basic union principle that's been forgotten. If there's unemployed workers out there, employed workers shouldn't be working overtime. Mm. We should be worrying about our brothers and sisters that don't have jobs. You know, now that's easier said today than done, because salaries are so low, many people have to work overtime to make ends meet. But as a basic union principle, we're all one class, and we got to be looking out for each other. 100%. Absolutely. So out of that experience, we decided we needed to get organized. You know, we, it couldn't be just this random, you know, Melrod goes to the Kinko's and runs off some pages of, you know, the, the contract. And we started meeting. And so it happened that the company came around and said, we're gonna speed up the assembly line by three cars an hour. And that's a lot. I mean, for anyone, no, to a ton. Come, It's a lot. And they took no work off of anyone's job. It's just a straight up speed up. So we met and we, you know, we said, what are we gonna do about this? So we said, let's let's put out a flyer, you know. So we decided to collectively write our first flyer which was was pretty good it was you know don't run, walk, fight speed up you know and you had to run it on a mimeograph machine in those days you had a hand crank you know to, to print like a2,000 copies of the flyer
0: and you got pictures of some of this stuff in the book
2: yeah, yeah and I there's really pictures enjoyed. in the book and there's pictures on my website. Mm-hmm. People go to the website again, it's just www.JonathanMelrod. Jonathan Melrod yes a lot more detail and a lot more pictures and examples of stuff mm-hmm.
0: yeah it really brings it to life and the whole archive of fighting times issues as well
2: yeah uh, yeah a whole archive that's right and the <laughs> fbi files <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> just just for that bonus. So you were yeah so you were fighting the speed up which like yeah like you were saying is is a brutal process like you know I mean an assembly line is already for those who don't you know don't know or haven't had that experience it's already like you're you're kind of pushing yourself to the limit to make it work and if the assembly line has to stop because of somebody that's a big deal on that person you know that person There's is not not a uh, that doesn't happen many times with it, with in that person stick around i'll say mm-hmm. that so yeah any kind of speed up i mean if anything it always needs to be slowed down like yeah so yeah. yeah y'all had to fight that
2: yeah so we handed out the flyer um and you know when we got into work everybody's reading it you know everybody's heads down they're reading it and and but we didn't really know how you fight speed up we just had written fight speed up yeah all of a sudden the seniority workers popped to life And they started showing us how to ride the line, it was called, which meant that you were only required to work at a normal pace. Mm -hmm. So the word went up and down the lines, work at the normal pace you worked at before they announced the speed up. Mm -hmm. So that meant that by the time you finished your job, you were 10 feet out of your work area and you were pushing that guy out of their work area. And they were pushing the next person further down the line. And you'd run out of air hose, so you would just throw your parts in the car. So no, cars weren't getting built. The You know, the, 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 cor- the um, corridors were lined up with cars, the roof was lined up with re- cars needing to be repaired, and nobody broke. Everybody stuck with the program and worked at a normal pace. Well, by the third day, oh, on the second day, we decided, we got to do something to up the ante. And one of the guys came up with the idea let's print a t shirt that says fight speed up on a big red stop sign. So you couldn't go anywhere to get it printed. So we had to teach ourselves how to make a silk screen and, you know, oh, push yeah. through and make the first t shirts. And Lenore well, made... and I have
0: some experience with making t shirts. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the Women's Socialism Conference t shirt, that was a debacle. But no, that, that's another story for yeah, the long it's long kind time. Of hard. That's yeah, that's a whole process. It's cheaper,
2: though. But uh, so right away, we sold those 25. And we're like, wow, this this is pretty good. So the next day, we make about 125 that next night and bring them in. They all get sold. Later that afternoon, the company comes around and notifies everybody on the assembly line, you know, if you wear that t-shirt and work tomorrow, you're going to be fired. So there's kind of like this quiet descends over the assembly line. You know, everybody's like, "What am I? You know, what's going to happen?" And all of a sudden, my steward comes up and he buys a T-shirt. Then my chief steward, the head of the whole department, comes up and buys a chief's uh, a T-shirt. And the vice president of the union buys a T-shirt. And they all announce, "We're wearing them in tomorrow." And all of a sudden, you know, like I was a guy. Who was around when the yippies and the hippies were here? And we thought everyone over 30 was a sellout. <laughs> so I had to reevaluate my thinking, you know, and I said, wow, these guys are pretty radical. Now, they weren't going to join our caucus, but they were going to unite with us on that issue of speed up. And that's an important lesson to keep in mind. For sure. Not everyone who's in union leadership. Particularly when you get down to the steward or the shop steward or the committee person in auto is a company person. You know, you can make alliances. So that was very important because that encouraged people. And the next day everyone wore them in. The company backed off. They took walk off of everybody's job. They had to add another worker into every section on the line. And again, the union principle. Don't do the work if you can bring in unemployed brothers and sisters off the street. So it was a huge victory. Of course, the company wasn't going to stand for that. So the word started coming out through supervisors that Melrod's been with the Black Panther Party. Melrod's a radical. Melrod's a communist. You know, Bertie Lapinka, the president of the union, Mm. has okayed that he's going to get fired. The International says he's going to get fired. So I knew that, you know, something was coming down. And sure enough, a day or two later, three plant guards come up and pick me up under the arms to drag me off the line. And I dig my feet in trying to, you know, stop. Um, and a lot of the older guys are yelling, sit down, stop work. But their stewards have been told to keep them on the line. Mm. And I and I got fired. And I when I walked out of that plant, I looked back up five stories and I said, Motherfucker, I'm gonna be back here someday. You just—it's mm-hmm.
0: like your movie moment. It's like uh, that's the end of the episode or something.
2: <laughs> I <laughs> oh, love yeah. that. And yeah, indeed, I if, mean, it, if there's if there's a villain of the know, piece, it's like I can go through the whole story of fighting to get my job back. I mean, people really rallied to my defense. Or mm-hmm. another caucus called Black and White getting it together they put out a leaflet saying, support these brothers, support, there were two of us, a Puerto Rican yep. guy and me, support these brothers, you know, we don't let people get fired for fighting, you know, the what their contract protects them to do. Uh-huh. And then this older chief, ste- who had been a chief steward of the whole factory, he put out his own leaflet saying for people to come to the meeting and vote to strike for my job. And people did vote to strike. And the president was a company man and an international union man, Took looked at his clicker counter and he threw it on the ground. He said, "Damn thing ain't working. Let's have a voice vote." And he ruled that we lost the voice vote, so I didn't get my job back on a strike. Mm. But I filed a, you know, a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. And two thousand five days later, I got a letter in the mail that I was being reinstated. Oh yeah, and what was beautiful was I felt like I had accomplished. My promise that I, I was coming back. Absolutely. And to really rub it in their face, I made this big sign on cardboard and it was a copy of the check, my back pay. And when I walked <laughs> to my job, I held it up over my head like a boxer, you know, with a fighter <laughs> belt, you know, mm-hmm. and people are like cheering and the foreman's like grim faced, you know, I got to put this fucker back on the line, oh, you know, yeah. I back to work and, uh, you know, started organizing again. That's but
3: phenomenal.
2: I'd like to jump back a little bit if I can. Do Do a very mm-hmm. important story. Not all my time was lucky enough to be in this very well-organized militant plant. While I was fired, the FBI um, made life pretty hard because they were following me. And I was working at a at a foundry making axles for Mack trucks. I was actually the only white guy there. It was all black guy, people of color. And uh, that's, you know, that it was the bottom, of, it was the... Most the toughest work in the city of Milwaukee. We had to work there 90 days to get off probation. On the 87th or 88th day, when I come into work, the superintendent standing there he says, Melrod, I need you in the office. Ooh. I go in his office and he says, You know, you're not a bad worker. I can't see anything wrong with your work, but uh there's been these federal people here who told me I gotta get rid of you. Oh man. I'm sorry, I gotta fire you. And the FBI had gotten there like two days before I got off my, my probation. Damn. So later I was a lot slicker. i know how to avoid them, to drive circuitous routes to apply for jobs. I'd use just pay phones to call in to see if I could get interviews. And I got a job at a steel fabrication plant. And there the union was weak as hell. It was like a business union. You know, you didn't even know that you had a steward. Right. And, you know, I started trying to organize the guys who were all... You know, to be honest, they were like guys who drove big muscle cars with wide tires. You know, every night we drank after work in the bar. We got hammered five nights a week. And they talk a lot of racist shit. And I would argue with them about it. You know, and I finally said to them at one point, why do you guys talk about, you know, race and use the N-word so much? And they said, Melrod, we grew up in juvie, in, in juvenile detention halls. And they said there were three groups. There were the Blacks, there were the Chicanos and the Indians, and there were the Whites. Mm -hmm. And we had to fight each other for everything. Who controlled the TV? Who got more dessert than the other? And they had been trained by the system to see those racial divisions as the way you had to live. Mm -hmm. That sticking together by race is what got you better treatment. That's right. So you know, talking wasn't getting it. It wasn't. It wasn't changing them. But you know, like we said earlier, like you said about the guy who worked at not Taco Bell, but whatever it was, Chili's. Yeah, Chili's. You got to keep talking to people.
3: Mm. And
2: the contract was about to expire. And I said to everybody, "Let's go to Eybolt's house." That was one of the guys who drove this great red, cherry red Trans Am. Let's go to Eyebolts and talk about the contract. So we have this meeting. Nobody shows up. And, you know, I'm pretty bummed. It's like, you know, wow. You know, everybody's my friend. Nobody shows. So the next night I said, let's have this meeting. I'll buy beer and pizza. So we get (laughs) everything over there and there's about 10 of us and finally get them corralled in. And we write a leaflet about what are the main demands we want in the contract. And everybody was united behind it because at contract time, the contradictions that Nora talks about surface to the very top. Right. You, it's, it's bosses and it's workers. And it's our livelihood that's on the stake. Absolutely. At stake. So we print up this leaflet and we all decide we're going to sleep at Eyebolt's house and we're going to get a couple hours sleep and we're going to wake up and leaflet first shift, which comes in at six o'clock in the morning. Well, of course, they drank all night and never went to bed. So I had to, like, shake them so to get out to hand out the first leaflet. And I'll never forget about the second guy that comes in is this true redneck. And he's got this white T-shirt. and His belly is, like, sticking out the front. And Wildman, who had been one of those guys from Juvie, when the guy calls Wildman a commie and says, I don't want your damn leaflet. Wild man crumples it up and sticks it all the way down his t-shirt. <laughs> motherfucker, read this. <laughs> so I, I said, this is a good learning experience. I said, Wild man, we can't force people to take, our, <laughs> you know, we got to be work with them more. Mm-hmm. Patient. So then we made up these yellow buttons that said good contract or strike June 12th, I think it was. And we took those in and amazingly the unorganized guys the whole night shift put them on. And then first shift kept saying, we want to get one. So we're out there pounding out buttons at night. and we're kind of mind blown. and basically we take over leadership because the union's nowhere. right. So we call for a strike at midnight and the union's nowhere. And you know, trying to avoid the issue of being called dual unionists, meaning mm-hmm. that we were trying to form our own union. We invited the night steward to speak at the rally, which he did, which was important because they then had trouble accusing us of trying to do our own union thing.
3: Mm. We
2: all did speak, and this rally out there on the street was fantastic. And it closed the plant. You know, and that from there on in, our caucus became the leadership. If people needed food, we'd go set it up. In those days, you could go down to the welfare department and you could get these big bricks, they called them cheese, but they were so orange, you wondered what they really were. But you could get cheese and you could get surplus butter and you could get powdered milk. And we started delivering that to the picket lines. Mm -hmm. When they started telling people that they were gonna be evicted because they weren't covering their mortgage or their rent, we put out a flyer and we said, if you get threatened with eviction, call us, we're gonna block that eviction. Mm -hmm. And then we made the international agree to cover their rent or their mortgage payment because we threatened to picket the international in downtown Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So here's what I really want people to listen to. Eyebolt's red tra- cherry red Trans Am got repossessed by General GMAC, General Motors uh, Financing Division. And everybody was bummed out. you know. And all these guys are coming up to me and saying, well, Melrod, you got us all out here and now what do we do? You know, I both lost his car. Thanks a lot. And I said, all right, we got to do something. I said, let's go get his car back. And they're, what are you talking about? A judge ordered it to be repossessed. And I said, we're not going to listen to that. We're going to go picket GMAC and we're going to get his car back. And they thought I was crazy. You know, they're used to judges. You don't mess with a judge. That's the law. Mm -hmm. We got out there. We had about 75 of us picketing walking around and all of a sudden two carloads of black meat cutters who are on strike join our picket line Oh yeah yeah. you see the guys all like what's up what's up with this you know and where are these guys from and so we're all picketing and then three of us go into the office of the manager of gmac and we said we're not leaving until you give this give eyebolt his car back and he says no the judge repossessed it that's the law and I said, I don't care what the judge did or what the law is. We want the car back or all of those people out there are going to be in your little office tonight and we're mm. not going home.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he freaks, gives us the keys. We walk out on the street, dangling the keys and people just, you know, that was like a kind of victory that, you know, comes once in a lifetime.
0: They're like a Super Bowl win. Just everybody. Yes. crazy. <laughs> yes.
2: But here's the best part of the story. The next week, all of those guys that had been so racist, we all went to join the black meat cutters picket line. Mm -hmm. And all my talking didn't do it. When we got people on the same picket line together, they understood their interests were interlocked. Yes. And they were willing to join, you know, black guys who they had just been talking about two weeks before, Mm -hmm. you know, and stand with them. And when the police came after us, police were pushing us and we were all pushing back. And it was, you know, a multicultural rainbow picket line. Yeah. Struggle bold consciousness.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: So, you know, that was really, I think, a lesson that for everybody to understand, you know, that we can win people over. It just takes organizing and working with people. So at that point, then I went back to American motor's, which was kind of hard because we had something pretty good going. But, you know, American Motors had 7,000 or 5,000 people in the plant. And I wanted, you know, the opportunity to be able to organize a larger plant. Um, But, you know, I know we've been going for a long time. So I'll just talk a little bit about in 1976, they were closing the part of the assembly line in Milwaukee. And we threw up a picket line demanding that they not move the jobs and they keep the plant working.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, four of us got fired for interfering with production. Apparently, we inadvertently blocked a truck that had parts for the plant. But um, because I had already been in front of the board, the board considered it retaliation for union activity, and the four of us eventually got that change to suspensions, and we all ended up getting transferred down to Kenosha where our jobs had gone. Mm-hmm. And in Kenosha, we used to put out Fighting Times newsletter, which is what the name of the book is named after the newsletter.
3: Mm-hmm. And the
2: newsletter became a force of its own. I mean, I know it's great we're having social media now, but there was something really great about, you know, going out there as a team, handing out the flyer to thousands of people in the morning before work. Something and the tangible, yeah. Room. Yeah, I mean, it was you got to know people. They got to know who you were. You know, at one point, the company sent a letter to everybody's home saying, "Well, there's communists at the front of the plant gates, and they won't even tell you who they are." So we came out the next day with a leaflet and said, "You all know who we are because we're the same guys <laughs> that are giving you this leaflet." Yeah.
3: yeah,
2: it boomeranged. You know, people finally people began to say, "Whatever, they're the best fighters in the union."
3: Exactly. You know?
2: So we used to go after foreman. We started a column called Scab of the Month. And yes. the workers on the line, mo- a lot of whom didn't know how to write, would like ask us, "Can you help me?" And maybe it was a short letter. You know, so and so was seen, you know, touching a woman's behind, hmm. you know, so and so was seen throwing an air gun, 35 pound air gun. At a black worker and calling him a lazy MFN word. Mm. That same foreman was seen calling two black women, taking his hand and putting him in the the form of a a gun and pointing at them and saying, bang, bang, two dead blackbirds. Jesus. And then he went up to one and said, I'd like you better. I mean, I like you, but I'd like you better if you weren't so flat chested. You know, I mean, a lot of people don't believe this. But this was, you know, the Blacks used to call it a plantation. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how it was run. And we didn't let any of those incidents go by. We wrote about them in fighting times. And then that led to us starting petitions in the plant. And the petitions led to us making stickers that, <clears throat> that like, would put a cartoon mocking the foreman, the way he looked, mm-hmm. like a pumpkin. You know, we had him with a pumpkin stem in his head. <laughs> Produce these three-by-three round stickers, and they'd be everywhere on the floor, on the back of his shirt, people would put him on, <laughs> on his desk in the bathroom. And so finally we had everybody put up their hands at the same time. And out of 35 people in his in his section out of 37, 35 demanded to go to see the nurse at that moment. Wow. you know so you know we had production. The last thing we did is we said "Bounty honey bounty hunting, season is open on Steve Freeman. Mm. Anytime a foreman picked up a screw or did any work that was union work, you could write a grievance and you'd be paid an hour's pay.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And wherever Steve Freeman went, if he picked up a screw, he'd be written up. So, I mean, we just, we had him cornered, you know, I mean, it was real tit for tat warfare. Mm -hmm. Finally, they brought in the fair employment practices committee from the union that recommended that he be discharged and the company discharged him. Yeah. which foreman that had ever been discharged for misbehavior like that. So he turned around and eventually organized some of the other foremen who we've been critical of. And they filed a $4.2 million defamation lawsuit against us that at first was kind of a joke until we got noticed that we had to go to court and it became real. You know, that we were fighting this suit where we could end up losing, you know, more money than we would ever have in our lifetimes. Right. And what was really a wonderful example of solidarity, 50 workers who had written articles came to court to testify that Mm -hmm. they had written those articles. Wow. One of them was scared off by the company. And, you know, they'd get up and they'd say, yes, this foreman did this. You know, this foreman said this, this woman was a racist. Well, the jury, we had picked a jury of our peers. All nine or 11 of them were workers. They were either, you know, factory workers, secretaries. They were all working class people. We could see from the beginning that they were on our side, you know, and the trial lasted six weeks. And later you go over to thank the jury because the jury refused to award the foreman any damages. Zero dollars. We went up to thank them, and they said we made up our minds on the second day. <laughs> so boring, you know. Mm-hmm. We're glad this is over. But you know, again, you know, you can beat the system. You just you got to be organized. And yes. that was a huge victory. And then the National Labor Relations Board sued American Motors. This was, I think, almost the seventh time. And American Motors <laughs> had to pay us two hundred thirty-five thousand dollars to pay our lawyers' fees and for back pay. So when I was finally left the plant, because they were basically closing it down in 1985, and I decided to go to law school to be a labor lawyer, um, the newspaper ran an article that said, Melrod 7, American Motors 0. Yes. <laughs> they won seven cases at the NRLB, and they had lost every case. Let's go. So in Love fact, it. I'd like to read to people just a paragraph that ends the book. Yes, please. please, please. please. Which, to me, has always been, you know, very moving. The Racine Labor of Venerable Weekly ran a front page photo of Melrod wearing his 1973 Fight Speed Up t-shirt. The story read, Melrod leaves for law school with 7-0 record at the NRLB versus... AMC, included a quote from Rudy. Rudy Kuzel was the most militant trade unionist I ever met, and he was president of the local at the time that I was leaving. And here's what he said. Local 72's loss is somebody else's gain. He'll always be out there trying to correct injustice. He'll be there with integrity, caring about people, and trying to help them. And that's what I've tried to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I became an immigration attorney representing refugees and political asylees. I became a attorney who fought police murders of young people of color. You know, I represented five clients who had been shot by the police. I mean, that's a whole other lifetime story. Mm -hmm. You know, I beat pancreatic cancer, which a lot of people go to my website just to read there's a long, long section that we couldn't fit in the book on how I prepared myself to use alternative medicine and chemo and determination that I was not going to allow that disease to kill me. Just a political struggle, I was going to win it. So that's all on the website. So I hope people go check that out. And I want to thank you guys for having invited me. And the book is Fighting Times on PM Press. And it's half off if, if you type in gift as in capital letters as the discount code. Mm-hmm. So you guys keep up the struggle against Cop City. And, mm-hmm. you know, I appreciate the support for the UAW. And uh, Atlanta sounds like it's a pretty together place. <laughs>
0: well, we're working on it. We it's got a, a lot pretty habit place. Yeah. It's a but, lot of work uh, to do. Yeah. It continues really- you now. We really appreciate you coming on. I would just want to stress again, uh, you know, we talk about books every week on this podcast, pretty much every week. And, uh, you know, uh, our listeners will know if we don't like a book, we'll say we don't like a book. <laughs> we liked this book. And I'm not just saying that. Like, this was a remarkable read. Um, it's a very easy read. I read it very quickly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much history and there's so much that we can learn from. And in the struggles that we have today, we have to learn from the past because like yes. that, the the movement has to have the history and it. it has to have the, the lessons of what works and what doesn't it has to be in every step of our organizing so that we can do what worked in the past and so we can avoid that which didn't and so we can also be inspired by being part of this long tradition you know when we look back um on our history we can look at the wins we have and say we're carrying this torch forward uh just as hopefully people in the future will look to us in the same way so yeah i cannot recommend this book more highly um and i really appreciate um you both for writing it jonathan and also for coming on to talk to us about it
1: yes absolutely
2: That was all really well said, Jacob. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I will say as well, like what really strikes me as I as you know, as I was reading this book is, you know, the whole defamation trial where they take you to task for calling out this uh, racist, sexist, you know, misogynist uh, foreman, you know, um, how they 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 stack up all those all those uh, all that nonsense against you. And then one by one, the company's um, the company's witnesses just crumble. Under the questioning of your attorney, you know, and basically end up becoming witnesses for you know your defense, you know, which True. to me, like that stands in stark contrast to the solidarity on display throughout this book from your union brothers, from you know the students, from everybody you organize with, right? It's to, it's very inspiring to me, you know, like because it's 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 you know, it's possible, but it's very difficult to make people you know turn turn class traitor, you know. Fundamentally, like you know, the company the company and its flax are cowards, you know, mm-hmm. like and and they can't and you know. Uh, assiduous organizing you know can can overcome can overcome any of that any of that nonsense you know and really demystify you know especially especially with the car possession story really demystify the um you know forces of capital and of the state that once seemed unassailable you know that's a very important psychological victory that uh you know i was very i was very inspired to read you uh your part
2: in also really well said you guys are i really appreciate hearing from you
0: Absolutely. Likewise. Jonathan, before we uh, hop off, do you have any other uh, any other plugs for our audience? Obviously, the book, uh, Fighting Times and jonathanmelrod.com.
2: You know, I, I would I would encourage people to get it because I'm working with the organizing committee at the Denver Art Museum. Mm. They called me up after they read the book, and I've been helping advise them. And they've now got 65% of the workers have signed Union cards for certification. Let's go. And one of the members of the organizing committee committee wrote me on Instagram and he said, just want you to know, 15 of us have bought Fighting Times and read it. I love it. So that's where that feels really good. That it can a book can make a difference and help people learn how to organize
0: no higher praise than that no doubt no higher praise than it actually you know having that real world application well jonathan thank you for coming on um and everybody who is listening thank you for listening to another episode of socialist shelf i am jacob here with lenore and uh signing off have a good one don't read fighting times
1: listening to Socialist Shelf Radio.